Hey there, welcome to the Coach C Podcast, and we are so excited today. We have a giant in the technology industry with us today. Um, Mike Slade, who started his career at Microsoft and then moved from Microsoft into, well, he's going to tell us some of those stories, but I think from Microsoft, he went to Next, and then he worked with Steve Jobs at Apple. In the process, he also worked uh, ESPN was one of uh, Mike's companies and sold that to Disney. So he has been in technology, in industry, an entrepreneur, uh, owned many companies and helped some really big leaders in uh, tech, uh, including Bill Gates, um, Paul Allen, and Steve Jobs. So we're really excited. So if you're tuning in today and you're watching the uh, Coach C uh, YouTube channel or you're listening to the YouTube to the podcast, uh, welcome, Mike. Thanks so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Glad to be here. And I know people ask you a lot about, you know, what was it like working at Microsoft in the heyday? Launching Excel, being on the forefront. I'm sure you get that question a lot, but I have a different question than that specific one. My question is, if you were creating Microsoft today, now and Excel and some of the technology, what different things would you do now than you would have done then? And it's a tough question. I'm putting you on the spot completely, but I'm really curious. Are you asking about me or about the company? You, so you, oh. you, what would you do? Well, you know, when I went to work there, uh, that's a really good question. I was uh, determined to have fun while I worked hard. Uh, and most people who worked there weren't. They were just working hard. So most people didn't have any fun. <laughs> I mean, I know that sounds like an extreme thing to say, but it was full of people who worked 18-hour days and gained 100 pounds and, you know, stayed up all night. And and, um, and I did work really hard, but I also, like, you know, during the seven years I, and a half years I worked there, I ran a couple marathons. I did four double-century bike rides. I cl climbed Mount Rainier twice, took a lot of fun vacations and, like, worked hard and played hard. Yeah. You know, I used to used to bicycle commute to work and back 50 miles a day, you know, friends who were training for a big bike race. And, you know, so I kind of like was a, by Microsoft standards, I was a renaissance man kind of. And so it turned out that later on when I got to be closer friends with Bill Gates, I found out that they all thought I was a goof off. Right. And then they only realized later that I was actually capable of doing all the work without having to work so many hours. That's so kind of funny. So I had to work, do it over again. I might work a little harder. That sounds like a funny thing to say. Uh, I might have worked a little harder. I don't Although, know. I think you had the formula for success in the ability to have it all and to maybe, you know, if you hadn't and, goofed off and ran those things, maybe you wouldn't have been so creative. Maybe you wouldn't yeah, have come I'm up with some of those ideas. Have, well, I probably wouldn't have laughed, and I'm kind of glad I laughed, even though it was a hard decision to leave because it was, it was a... Uh, it was a place where if you weren't a brilliant technologist, which I wasn't, you were supposed to be kind of a buttoned up business person because Bill already knew all the strategy, all his decision making anyway. And I was sort of neither of those. So right. it was good for me to go somewhere else. And so, it's Steve Jobs, who I worked for after Bill Gates, was more uh, emotionally like me in that he and I both led with our emotions a little more than Bill did. It was much more leading with his, leading with more of a, purely ruthless logic thing. Steve is smart too, sure, but he and I both wore everything on our sleeve, kind of, you know? So yes. uh, we were um, we 
were emotionally in tune. This is a strange thing to say, but we really were. But anyway, um, but it was really fun. I mean, Microsoft, you know, the thing that people don't really realize about those days is that nobody thought computers would get as pervasive as they are now. And even when the internet started, and I was running Starwave, the company that built the SBN.com that we sold to Disney, nobody thought it would get. So there's a, a thing I just put up on Facebook. I found this old article about a, I was on this panel in 1997 called The Future of News, and I was on this panel discussion with Michael Bloomberg and Arthur Sulzberger and Andrew Lack of NBC News. And because, um, we you know, by 1997, MSNBC had launched and CNN was online and ABC News was online. And, you know, there were news sites on the Internet. The New York Times was at a premium wall. Wall Street Journal did. But it was still on your computer, right? And so right. it's funny looking at the quotes from then – uh, those guys were all just thinking of it as another distribution channel for their existing product. And I was in this panel being kind of a jerk and saying like, no, 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 the person in front of the computer is totally different. And he has, he or she has a different set of expectations. And you have to tailor it for them. It can't be the same old thing. But even I never thought that if you have a phone in your hand with a big screen and a super fast connection, you know, and that you'd like make hotel reservations you know, buy a house in the back of an Uber ride. You know, nobody, that just seemed like crazy, right? Wireless internet seemed crazy, right? So it, even, the only point I would say is that even when you're doing it, you never realize how big it can be. And I also think it's probably a good lesson for people that you shouldn't be in a hurry for something to get gigantic. You know, yeah. just try to get the first million bucks of revenue or whatever and then get another one. You know? Yeah. You know, there's no such thing as a big company that didn't have a couple of hard years and, was a little crappy small company for a while, right? There's there's almost no counterexample of that. Yeah. Um, I, people have to forget that. I want to unpack a couple of things that you said that were really um, brilliant, Mr. Renaissance Man. Uh, today you would be called a disruptor because that's, you know, then you're a Renaissance Man. Today you would actually be deemed a disruptor. And so right. the different cultures, when you left Microsoft, I think you were pointing to you didn't fit the Microsoft culture. Right. And so it was either, yeah. and either the culture change. Well liked, yeah. Yeah, there's a difference between being well liked and there's a mismatch in culture. And right. often leaders will say to me, you know, I'm hiring for culture, I'm hiring for culture. Except they don't understand the culture of the company that they currently have and what impact it makes on their future. Yeah, good point. What would yeah. you say about that? Well, so it's funny when I ran when I ran my company, we did definitely hire for culture. We were building a bunch of cutting edge multimedia products, and so I would screen really hard for people who were like super into it, and I would challenge them, like if you're here for the wrong reasons, you won't have any fun. I used to do that in the early days of Microsoft too. Early days of Microsoft, when I would interview people, I'd be like, you know, when not many people were into computers, I'd be like. Do you really like computers? Like, because if you don't, you will be miserably here, okay? Because everyone else is like a super geeky, you know, like unscrewing the back of the PC, you know, like if you don't really like them, go away. I would challenge people to right. try and prove to me that they were geeky enough, right? right. And when we ran our, our own company, you know, we were building ESPN.com, and so we wanted people who were sports, crazy sports nuts, right? Lived, eat, lived, breathed sports. And worked for like no money. You know, we would hire people at like nineteen thousand dollars a year right out of college to help edit ESPN.com. And they were all thrilled to be there, you know, because right. we were that's so their whole life was sports. They love sport. They they 
They slept it. They breathed it. We would all get to go play basketball. Paul Allen's house on Monday night, he built a replica of the Trailblazers practice facility at his mansion at Mercer Island. He would open it up to us on Monday night. And for those guys, that was worth more than a raise, right? Yeah. Which is so fun, right? Yeah. So, so we definitely hired for culture that way. And we wanted people who were, well, back up one thing. The, the, the toughest thing about a company is um, the macro environment in which it's participating. And so most of the things I did in my career that were fun were in an industry where there was a super high rate of change that while you were there, things were changing fast and the predictions were basically worthless, right? And so, because it's early in the curve or whatever. So if you're in some mature business, you know, you're hiring for a very, very different culture than if you're in a business that's changing rapidly and is growing and is still in the early parts of whatever it is that's changing. And so you have to hire different kinds of people for those things. And so since I sort of was like incapable of working in a company that wasn't in a fast growing thing, I would only either find people or attract people or hire people who, who fit, who were interested in something like that. It's, mm-hmm. It sounds fun, but it's actually harder than you think. Because you have to be comfortable with the fact that your forecast isn't worth the paper it's printed on. Right. right? So, you know, I do venture capital now. People bring me these uh, forecasts and, you know, it's got like, you know, the, the 36 month is 7.84 million. And I'm like, dude, like the likelihood of that cell being correct in your spreadsheet is in fact zero. Right. Okay. Yeah. And the guy gets all mad and I'll say, I'll bet you a million dollars that forecast is wrong. You take that bet. Okay, right now, you go, no, we'll see, you know, because you're wrong. It's just an Excel spreadsheet, right? It's just a formula. Right. How, do you, how you built it. I can derive the formula by looking at it. Okay? Yeah. So, you know, so anyway, the point is that the highest upside, the most beta and the most upside comes in businesses where it's early days. Yeah. And by definition, that means you have to be comfortable managing super high amounts of uncertainty and and you, you have to put your brain in this thing where you compartmentalize into the things you can control, cost, schedule, people, and the things you can't control, which are like revenue, size of the denominator, you know, is the business, doesn't even exist, you know. Like say you spend all your passion on VR, well, VR took all, it's taking a long time to get anywhere, right? So you better be patient. Or have to, uh, so anyway... Right. Things like that, I always try to uh, view everything through that lens, if you will. Yeah. Where, where are we in whatever thing this is, right? You know, right. Like builtespn.com, nobody ever built an interactive news or sports service before. We were the first ones to ever do it. And so everything was new. There were no rules, right? And you had to operate mostly on instinct and then feedback because nothing else really mattered. Right. And I and think it, that's so applicable to where people are now with high, high levels of uncertainty and unknowing. And I think in in this particular case, we're in the middle of a pandemic, there are different levers people are used to pulling in their business and those traditional ones are not giving them what they need. Like they don't have the certainty to be able to use those tools. Like you said, when you're building something from scratch, you have no idea how it's gonna net out or what's gonna work or how it's gonna work in the market, how quickly people will pick it up or, you know, is it the right fit for the all of the things that you're trying to accomplish in a business plan? So if you were to look at some of the things that, you know, how do you help people calm down and how do you help them focus their decision-making process in such 
high levels of uncertainty? Well, you know, it is interesting. It's a good question. I, you know, I'm on a bunch of boards and different companies have experienced different levels of stress because of pandemic. And one of the interesting things is that there have been several times where things that um, things that were a negative, right? Like, oh, geez, we can't do this for a while. The, the If you think about it, they also have a positive associated with them. Like one of the companies I'm on the board of uh, has a pretty good events business where they do events for the industry that they're in and the events are mildly profitable and they're not that big. They're a few hundred people or something that kind of targeted. So they can't do them. Right. Right. So they're doing online events and guess what? They have no cost. So they're a hundred percent gross margin and they have no capacity constraint. Right. So yeah, you can't charge as much because it's this lame online thing instead of being in a room, but you, they have zero cost. So they're really profitable. Yeah. And so it completely changes the spreadsheet and the way you think about it. And instead of doing five or 10 a year, you could do 50 a year. Nobody cares. They got nothing else to do, right? right. So it's really funny how uh, a business, so I'll give you another example. My sis, my daughter's boyfriend uh, used to work for Herman Miller and he sold not just chairs, but office stuff and office planning in the Bay Area for Herman Miller. And he was doing great because every startup wanted cool stuff from Herman yeah. Miller. Just killing it. It's a neat company, you know. Big old company. And he quit to work for the startup that does space planning as a software as a service in the cloud. It's a really neat company. Hmm. And then the pandemic hit, and I was like, man, that's going to be bad, right? But it turned out it was really good because everybody has to reconfigure their space. Right. So it's, it's got the world's greatest entree to his sales calls. Right? Yeah. It, it, every single person has to rethink their space in a world where they really don't even know who's going to come in the office and when. Right. right. So anyway... It's, those are just little dumb examples of how the thing about the pandemic is all you really know is that it isn't going to go away for a while. Right. And if you think you know when, A, you have ESP, and B, you're wrong. So, <laughs> right. wrong. Anyway, whatever you think, you're probably wrong. Yeah. And well, so even what we, thought, what we thought 10 weeks ago to what Absolutely. we know now, we were completely yeah. wrong. Yeah. So we made decisions yeah. based on data points without enough information and context. And I think a lot of companies have done that yeah. throughout periods of time. Um, it brings me to a question because we talk about the pandemic and how people are shifting and what companies are doing to morph their, uh, their business offerings or their cost centers or their structures. I think yeah. it also offers an opportunity for a lot of companies to expand into a global experiences that they might have thought they were only local previously. So they're shifting yeah. the way they think about their business. Because there's no reason not to be global. Right. The, thing about, the whole thing about Zoom or whatever technology you're using, Teams, Ring Central, whatever, is that it, it is not great, but it's not nearly as bad as people thought it was. Right. And even five years ago, it was horrible. But the combination of better tech, better system integration and better bandwidth, even in the last five years, means that, you know, sometimes it's pretty bad and you have a bad connection and 20 people, but oftentimes it's just not that bad. Right. right? And so once it gets to, like this sounds so weird, once it's not that bad, you know, it'll work for almost anything, you know? And so you have all these tech companies saying that people can work from home, you know, for at least the next six to 12 months. And then a lot of them are saying, hey, work from home forever. We don't care. Right? What are your thoughts on that? I think it's really interesting. Uh, 
I, I have a bunch of real estate investments and I'm just making a new one. And I was thinking to myself, why am I making this investment if office spaces are dead? And then I realized that the one I'm making is about engineering, mm-hmm. like hard stuff, like not software engineering. Hard, and they actually yeah. have to be there to do it, right? And so I think what you're going to see, I could be wrong, but I think what's going to happen is there are going to be two kinds of office workers, pure knowledge workers and other. And pure knowledge workers, you know, will, you could have a thing where most of them don't come into the office or not very often or maybe a day a week or maybe a day a month, you know. And if that's true, you know, you're going to see the whole notion of urban planning and big hit urban centers completely change before your very eyes. Yes. People, where would you rather live, San Francisco or Sun Valley, right? Right. Or, you know, or uh, Colorado Springs or, you know, New York, right, or whatever the example is. You know, yeah. I'm not going to declare victory for Omaha quite yet, but <laughs> I'm going to say that there's a lot of places that are mid-sized and are out in the country and beautiful that might be nicer places to live, be way cheaper yeah. than living in, you know, right off a market in some tiny condo that's 4000 bucks a month in San Francisco or in L.A. or New York or even Seattle. It's really expensive. So I do think that's going to happen because you have these really big, powerful companies like Amazon, Apple, Google, Microsoft saying, hey, work from home. Yeah. You know, we don't care. Completely like it's going to be a perk just like nice offices and snacks were a perk, right? Right. And once you do it for a while, you realize just how much insane time you're burning, not only commuting, but then recreating life in some office, right? right. Like another little house. Yes. There's that famous routine George Carlin does about stuff. <laughs> yes. And, and when you listen to that routine, I just listened to it with my kid. I'm such a bad parent. I'm no, that's George good parenting. I love George Carlin. <laughs> Once we listen to that routine, I'm like, my God, that's what offices are. It's just you take some of your stuff and you and create this little take home in your office them. with a picture of your spouse and your dog and a, your little float, your little fidget spinner, and you know, it's just stupid, right? So yeah, and you're gonna it's gonna change the housing market in a big way. You know? Yes, extra bedrooms, separate structures in the yard for a, you know, I was over at my brother-in-law's house and he's building a little office in his backyard. Yes. You know, Why not? It's kind of like a giant shed, basically. You know? Yeah. I think that will happen. So I believe that whatever happens with the pandemic, it will still be one of those things where we're underestimating how big a change it will be. Yes. I, I agree. So many, so many things are online anyway. You're like, why am I going to some dumb office? Right. You know, just to hang out with a bunch of people, you know? Right. Uh but it could, it'll depend on the city and the place. But I do think it will happen. And, you know, the way these things work sometimes is, you know, there used to be this time when you could read about Amazon and you'd say they're only 2% of all retail sales, right? And even then, it was a bigger deal than you thought. Right? Yes. And that's, it could be like that. It could only be 2% of all office workers, and the next thing you know, it's 10%, 20 But so there's a lot of changes, but that's the biggest one to me because that's a cataclysmic change. Yes. That happens. Yes. And I think, I think one, we're seeing it here in Toronto as well. So a lot of people that are living in these, you know, 500 square foot condo downtown Toronto so that they can get to Google, Microsoft or one of the large institutions down there, they don't have to go back to work. They're buying up 
um, property in the more rural areas and there's housing is exploding outside of the city and uh, condos are becoming more empty. So, you know, yeah. it for sure that's happening. I also suspect that leaders are going to be, have to challenge themselves in how do you keep your company culture? So one of the things that we talked about is that culture, like you weren't that, the culture at Microsoft and then working with, with Steve and with Paul Allen and the different cultures you worked in through the, through the years. What do you think will happen if people are so um, uh, spread around and, and relating really through Zoom and getting a lot of their work? How do you think people will be able to connect and create that powerful, cohesive culture? It's a good question. I, I have kind of a cynical view about it. So in our building here in Seattle um, is Zillow, which is a great company and yep. has a lot of employees. And they probably have 10 or 12 floors in this building. It's a beautiful building right overlooking the sound. And the guy that found Zillow, both of them are good friends of mine. So I've been up in their offices a bunch. They gave us card keys because it's right above our office. We'd go up there and steal snacks. So anyway, so we go up there sometimes. And it was it's laid out in this way where it's all uh, tables. It's not cubicles. It's just people sitting at tables. And then there's really large, beautiful common areas with like free food, view of the sound and everything. But anyway, and most everybody that works there is quite young. And I see them on the elevator all the time because we're in the same elevator bank. So they're all like, you know, my kid's age, 27, 26, whatever. And... When you go up there and walk around, the thing that you realize most is that when people are working, which mostly means sitting in front of a computer screen and talking or whatever, 100% of them have headphones on. Yes. Which is like, I mean, I understand it, and it's the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life. It's an office. So part of me thinks they're not talking to each other anyway at all not like when i was in the office you know if you watch an episode of the office right right, they're talking to each other all the time there's all this banter and you know which is actually not that far from real life right yeah my theory is that that's not happening right it's maybe happening on break but even then they have their headphones in and listen to a podcast or something so uh, it may be that that culture doesn't exist anymore anyway right so you have to find different ways to create it or maybe you don't need culture. Is culture necessary? What are your thoughts? I mean, I'm a culture, I, that's what I coach to, so I'm, I'm curious, like push back on me. Do you need it? I, I don't, well, I think you need it, but I don't know what it is anymore is what I'm trying to say because, uh, for example, you know, most meetings are kabuki. Yeah. Most meetings are somebody talking about something they've already made their mind up about and then just going through some goddamn PowerPoint slides, or in the Amazon case, this memo has been written that's so synthesized and homogenized and pasteurized, by the time the meeting happens, it's all just a fait accompli. So, which just means for a short Mm -hmm. meeting. So what I don't really know is, in this environment of people wearing headphones and the internet not being a mystery or being kind of super well known, I don't know how much culture is being created anyway. That's what I don't really know. See, part of the thing is that culture is helpful when you don't know exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. You have a system where it's super easy to measure what's going on, and a lot of internet companies now are based, you know, the whole thing is measurement, right? Yes. You know, we sell measurement, we measure what we sell, whatever. That That's almost trumpet. It almost trumps culture in a funny way. Mm. 
so I don't know the answer. It's a weird question. The CEO, the leaders, they do lead by example. And so that's true whether you're in person or not. Right. A lot of the time is about, you know, one of the things that I always thought was sort of funny about, like when I worked at Microsoft, is that, you know, I started working there when there were 400 people and I left when there were 8,800. And when I started, there were only two decision makers, Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer. And when I left, there were only two decision makers, Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer. <laughs> and I asked Bill about it one time. He was like, yeah, we basically made all the big decisions. We, don't, we didn't need you guys to make decisions. Right. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> so I so your value you know, just went down. I thought I was making big decisions here, you know. But so anyway, the, my <clears> point is that in a lot of companies, what you're doing, if you're not the number one or two person, you may be doing lots of good things, but you're not making decisions. Right. You're not making big decisions. Right. right? Strategic. You know? Yeah. Avoid the iceberg. You know, you're not doing that. You're just right. shoveling coal. Right. So <laughs> I, I'm not trying to be cynical about culture. I'm just sort of saying that it's all about the leader. Right? Yeah. And if you are a leader, I think one of the things that I learned when I became a CEO is that everything you say is super scrutinized, just like a politician. Yes. And, and you have to not only be on all the time, but you have to repeat yourself all the time. Yeah. And you I don't think that's going to change. That, those yeah. levels of leadership are not going to change in the, because of the pandemic. I think, you know, one of the big challenges, I think, for leaders is that engagement level. Like people finding their purpose in your company while they're working remotely is going to be a huge challenge because if you've got top talent and you're not delivering, they don't feel valuable or you're not delivering that to your people and they're all remote, they'll vote with their feet and just switch. They'll just change the thing on their laptop now and the logo on their screen. So that's going to be a big challenge is making sure you, you have some compelling reason for people to work toward. And that would, that's what we call purpose. So you know, what is the purpose? Why are you in business? What difference do you make? What impact are you making? And I think that's going to be a big challenge for leaders to pull that out of a remote workforce. Well, it's a good point because, you know, one of the things that was funny about the early days of Microsoft is that we always said that no one who came would leave because there was nowhere to go. Right? It's there in Seattle, right? All there was was Boeing, you know? And so, whereas in Silicon Valley, it, you know, all you had to do was change the exit off of Highway 280, you know, from Company A to Company B. So, I mean, it, it really wasn't a big deal. People And people did change jobs all the time. They yeah. were not yeah, now, of course. But so your point, which I think is a really good one, is that in a world where you're mostly working from home, anybody can change a job. You know, we've one of my companies I'm on the board of, we hired a CFO the week the lockdown started. He's never met anyone he works who works for him. Yes. The, the you know, that's a hard transition. Yes. I mean, he's doing fine, but imagine, right? Yeah, I have two clients that are in that situation where they pivoted and they are now working in different companies during the pandemic. So they've never face-to-face met. It's all been on Zoom. Wild. Yeah. Because yeah. you can see what their house looks like. Yeah, and their office. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, so it is a good, I probably just, I probably the simplest takeaway is that you have to work overtime to lead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that because I think also leaders, you know, at this point, they're having to attend to issues that they didn't sign on for, you know, managing company stress levels, anxiety, all of the, all of the nuances that this pandemic has brought kind of 
and put it on the table that were under the table before. You know, we all know employees have stress. We all know they have anxiety. It's, it's part of life. It's part of being a leader. It's part of working. But now this seems to be the, the conversation that so many people are having because of the heightened levels of uncertainty. And, you know, a lot of leaders are like, we know the vision, we're clear on what we want to do, go get it done. Other leaders are trying to pivot and attend to how do I engage people and address these high levels of anxiety? Because you can't make powerful decisions if your brain is scrambled. And if you're in a, yeah. if you're in a company, if you're building it or leading it, and there's, you know, what I would call like the freeze zone, right? Because there's so much anxiety, so much scrambling going on. It's like, what is the decision I need to make? And you don't even necessarily know. So what would you say about leading that? And how, how would you go about leading that now? Well, you know, it's interesting because in some ways dealing with the pandemic versus a normal old work scenario is more stressful. But in some ways it's less stressful because when you leave a meeting and go bounce your kid on your knee or go take your dog for a walk or go hit your workout room for half an hour, I mean, it's a lot better than sitting in your car or riding the subway or getting on an airplane or taking the taxi to the airport and getting on an airplane, going to security, then going back to the commute, you know, five hours to get home, you know, including both trips to the airport. So, like, you know, in some ways it should be a lot less stressful. It sounds stupid, but it really is true, you know. Yeah. You know. Your home is your little sanctum, and so there are things about it that... And and I also think that because Zoom meetings are more stressful than real meetings, that they end quicker. So, which is just Why do you think they're more stressful? Yes. You think Zoom meetings are more stressful than than in-person meetings? Because you're like, it's an unnatural... You know, you're on, you know... Yeah. In a real meeting, you're like, ah, there's three nose, you know, I gotta go to the bathroom, right? But here it's like, you know, no, I think, and everybody I've talked to, there, my kids got really fatigued when we first started doing Zoom schooling. Yeah. We're just sitting in the classroom, right? Because yeah. it's like, can they see me? You know, they can see you. Like, yeah, I know, right? And so, no, and I, so I do think they, in my experience, that meetings end quicker. Well, I think people is, get to the point faster. Yeah, which is good. It just shows you how much time gets wasted in a meeting normally. Yeah. It's bullshit, you know, and people just yammering on and posturing so they can be heard. You know, 28 people in a meeting, they all want to talk. You're like, okay, it's your turn. Say something. Don't yeah. be too stupid. So, I mean, uh, part of me thinks that it should make things more straightforward and a little less, uh, reduce a little bit of the indulgent immaturity inherent in the kabuki of meetings, which I'm a big contributor of over my career, but I'm just saying it is silly, right? You know, you're the, the one office. like tossing the Doritos at people in the middle of the meeting. No, I'm always telling jokes, you know, like, you know uh, over and over again. But, but I do think, so that part is good. I think the hard part is that, um, the hard part will come. Most companies are doing what they were already doing before the pandemic started or iterating yeah. off of it. But yeah. if it's a year from now and you're doing something new, that's going to be really tricky. To brainstorm and create things from scratch, not together, will be really hard. Well, I think uh, any the other point to that is it doesn't mean they can't be together. It doesn't mean you can't have meetings for the sole purpose of strategy and planning and creation 
and then you go back and you go work and implement it from your home. You know, like yeah, I think there will be that balance. I agree, although we are in a place in our Western society now where asking anybody to do anything they don't want to do is the equivalent of killing them, right? right. So, I don't care what it is, right? I want you to blow your nose. I'm so oppressed, right? You know, whatever it is. And so uh, part of it, I don't think that's really true. That yeah. is, I think like if you're at some big company like Microsoft or Google or Apple or Amazon and you tell the 52 people on Project X that have to come to a meeting next Friday, you're going to get five emails saying, I'm not going to go. My brother-in-law's garbage man's grandma's, you know, immunocompromised. I have to stay home and wear an hazmat suit to go to the bathroom. Whatever. You're going to get a bunch of those people who are all offended that you're going to, you're killing me by making me go to this meeting. (laughs) You can't take away my rights. Yeah, it's possible. I think also on the flip side of that, people are also yammering to be together. So there's also the, we're social creatures. So we, we do like to be together. So I think there will be a lot of that. Let's talk about sports because I know you're a big sports guy and, you know, tennis, golf, basketball, all this football, all the things that you love. Uh, what about the NHL is coming back online with no fans? The M- the uh, baseball is coming back with no fans. So tell me. They're all, they're all trying. Yeah. I think they're all. So as an example, they organized this thing where they took all the soccer teams and put them in Orlando. Right. Soccer team with no, it's a tournament with no fans. Right. And uh, it already sent two teams home because they, they have too many cases. Right. So all these people have great intentions for two reasons. One is everyone loves sports, and two is they're gigantic businesses. And so if you unplug it for a year, they all, the model's broken forever, basically. Yeah. You know, the model is this thing, it's, you break down the model of college football or pro basketball, you have all these levers turning to create all this value of billion-dollar franchises. So if you stop it, it might never come back. Yeah. It's weird to think about, right? Yeah. So they're all trying really hard. I'm worried that they're all going to have unpleasant surprises, that, you know, there's a critical mass time. I mean, already you have famous guys opting out. Yeah. You know, when did that ever happen, right? You know, like, I don't want to play. Nobody ever said that before. Yeah. Right? And so then, for perfectly good reasons. But so I'm worried that in the next, like, six months, all these experiments will have something go wrong with them. That's not anyone's fault. It'll right. just be, you know, you know, if you have a 12-man roster on your basketball team and four guys have test positive, you basically can't play. Right. right? So what do you do? Forfeit? You know, like, it's like a little, it's weird, right? Yeah. So... Uh, some of these sports is easier, you know, golf, it's pretty easy to have a golf tournament with no fans and socially distant, you know, it's no big deal, right. but any sport with contact or, you know, I mean, the basketball, you know, you're always hockey based football, you know, those. So I, I'm worried yeah. as a fan, I'm worried that you could have a real breakdown. Like college football is the most interesting example because even though they have a lot of TV money, most of those athletic departments make a ton of their money off football oh, okay. ticket sales. Yeah. And they're going to get killed this year. And those sports, college football, pays for every other sport in every American university. It pays for volleyball. pays for field hockey. It pays for women's softball. It pays for fencing or whatever the hell it is. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is. It pays for it. 
right? right. And so if that goes away, which it will, yes. I think, it can really change everything. And the reason I say that is that I don't. I think if that happened, if, if most of the major sports just for whatever reason collapsed for a year, I think it'd be really depressing for people. People, yeah. I mean, I worry that mm-hmm. a second wave will get people really down. The first lockdown was like a big long vacation for anybody with a little savings. Right. right? It's a little but novelty I, right now. I don't need to minimize it for people who mm-hmm. had hard times, but you know, and by the way, like, you know, my daughter got paid more than she was making, you know, so yeah. it's a good joke, right? Right. So something made money, but a second wave, a third wave. And that's why I bring it up in the context of sports, because I don't think it will work. Yeah. I think something will go wrong. Now, it could be that by the end of this year, you can test every day. That stuff is coming, right? Yeah. So you can test every day. It's different. But you'll still get people who are sick. Yes. And then they're sick. They, we don't have a cure yet. So no. you got to go quarantine them. Yes. Right? So now, you and I have spoken about it. I don't see a way it's going to work. And by the way, it's pretty weird to watch a game with no fans. Yeah. I'm pretty it, sure it's also very weird to play it. It's like practice. Yeah. Must it, it's like one notch above a scrimmage. Yeah, it's a practice. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. So, I worry. I don't really know the answer because I don't have a crystal ball. But yeah. it seems likely that more stuff will go wrong. Mm-hmm. That if you start out, you know, with a uh, abbreviated hockey season or abbreviated basketball tournament or a soccer tournament, you put them all in one place, that something goes wrong. Yes. You know, it's pretty fragile in terms of the number of people, you know, even – Football has six, 53 people on the roster, right? So if 10 get sick, if 5 get sick, you know, the U.S. positivity rate right now is relatively high number. Yes. So it doesn't take much to basically eviscerate the team. Then what do you have, right? So right. I don't – I'm. it's an area where I don't have a good answer and I'm kind of like worried and just because it doesn't – it seems more likely something will go wrong than not. I don't mm-hmm. know if that makes any sense. No, it it's kind does. Of weird. I mean, uh, it does show you how silly and pointless being a sports fan is, right? You know, it's searching for <laughs> I've been saying that for a long time I'm, in my I'm, house. I'm, you know, I'm still playing, you know, still fine, you know. I, you know, I don't get to watch Roger Federer, but I'm still good, you know. Yeah. But, like, it is weird to yeah. think about. Yeah, it's that people, As George Carlin said, you just root for laundry. Right. The players come and go, but you root for laundry. You know, I'm, a, I'm a Yankee fan, you know. But um, right. but it is really funny. But anyway, so I don't know the answer to it. I am kind of worried about it, I guess the headline I would say. Yeah. Because there's too many combinations of things that could go wrong. Yeah. That spell really bad news for yeah. both TV, certainly for gate, but also for TV, TV revenue. Right. And that's all those guys got is TV revenue and gate. That's yeah. all those businesses are. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, one to watch because I don't think there's a solution. I don't think there's a, like you said, it's something to be worried about. My bigger concern, when you look at why do people watch sports? So I have two, I have three competitive athletes in my house. And we have taken away hockey, rugby, and dance completely full stop. So when you look at the kids, you know, they watch sports because they have a dream to be awesome or be extraordinary or be the next Sidney Crosby. When you take those figures out of the equation, what happens to that dream? And, yeah, and what happens happy. to those kids? That, that you're removing a future that they would have like really worked hard towards. And it's I think that's going to be a big trickle-down effect and have a very negative impact in the long run, for sure. 
I totally agree with you. You know, kids, uh, well, even adults, you, when you fall in love with something, you get very aspirational about it mm-hmm. and you project onto it. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah. Um, but I do think until there's a vaccine or really, really good treatments, both of which could happen by the end of the calendar year, but mm-hmm. we could have, I would just advise people to be, to emotionally gird for tricky times between now and Christmas. Right. I think yeah. a lot of it could be really hard. Whatever's going on in your life, it could be hard. It yeah. could get worse, not better. Yes. Yeah. And just in terms of things that are inconvenient or sort of like, again, you know, I just kind of have that feeling. Yeah. Like, I, you know, my kids are supposed to go back to school in the fall and they're going to go middle school one week, high school the next week, no sports, right? Yeah. Intramurals, but not. And I just don't think it'll last. Yeah. I think something gets sick. What are the, what's going to happen to the teachers? Some of those teachers are old, you know, so what's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a it's a weird time. And for a business person, you have to be the, uh, you know, a a uh, a voice of sanity and comfort and reason. you got to you got to run your business to make sure you don't go out of business. Yes. Right. I think so, that that's always the case, right? You need to run your business properly and powerfully. Well, but normally you can predict better than this. No, you know? now you can't. Yeah, that's right. Which so, I, I think there's a benefit of that. So as you said, when we first started talking, you know, people are having to be innovative and do things in completely different ways, more like explorers in their business. How do you do things in an unpredictable environment, right? You can't plan for it, so you have to figure it out. So I think there's a lot more people going to be able to create some things that are really extraordinary, and then there's going to be a lot of people who, and a lot of companies and a lot of businesses that won't survive this. And... And it's, it's one of those things. Well, if you think you're running lean, run leaner. Yeah. Yeah. Right? You know, it sounds stupid, but that's the single best advice I could give somebody is, you know, you're going to lay off four people, lay off six people. You know, okay. Or whatever. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. your ability to predict will be worse than usual. Yes. What are the businesses that you are seeing that are thriving? So I know you do a lot of VC and you're raising capital for companies. What are the areas that you're seeing people make big shifts in that are uh, coming online that weren't weren't there before? What what are you putting your bets behind? Well, I mean, it's not, there's no strategy to VC. It's just you know, uh, but if people tell you there is one there, <laughs> but uh, you know, random things. You know, I, we invested in the this company that was doing um, fitness workout videos and they were really smart people and they'd done stuff before and their model was to go free for a while and then get your charge and literally we we helped fund it with a bunch of other investors and then right after that that lockdown happened and they've they, they've gone through the roof yes. you know so is that brilliant is it lucky I don't know I mean it was a trend anyway right so yeah. um, uh, I'm on the board of this company that makes these super smart drones that fly themselves, Skydio, that is this really cool AI engine. So you can fly it if you want, it never crashes, or it can fly itself and follow you. And they're getting a tremendous amount of interest from both uh, government and commercial for inspection and remote presence and stuff. And so they're going very guns. And that's a company that works well remotely, so they Mm -hmm. don't affect them at all. So it just kind of depends. You know, I'm a on the board of this company, Real Self, that is kind of the trip advisor of Metaspas and plastic surgery. And they got killed, but now most of that stuff's open again. So, right. Not in California, but elsewhere. They just closed it all yesterday again in California. The numbers went back up. Yeah. But yeah. Um, 
it's just, you know, in general, if you're a CEO, it's hard because these are truly exogenous variables and you have no ability to control them. All you can do is react, right? Yeah. So you better come up with things that are COVID proof, like virtual consultations or whatever it is, you know, virtual events, things that, you know, it, the one thing I would always advise people is that most of the stuff is pretty easy to try. Yeah. Ultimately cheap and easy to try, whatever business you're in. And if you're not trying it, you're stupid. Right. I mean, really, you know, why wouldn't you try? Right. So it was really interesting when you and I had talked about the Collision Conference and uh, there was a couple other large conferences and I had signed up and I bought the ticket. And the thing for me, and I speak all the time, so this shouldn't be a big deal for me. I was literally paralyzed when I went to hit those buttons on those virtual meeting rooms because you see this big fancy thing and it's like a networking room or who's live on stage or who's talking now. And it... I had to get through this fear because all of my life, whoever's on the other side of that computer is a scary person. They're a, they're a predator. They're going to steal your money. They're going to steal your kids. They're going to come after you. And I didn't even realize that was running the show. I'm like, what is going on here? Why can't I go into this virtual room and network with people? I think there's going to be a lot more of that kind of recognition where the old thought patterns and the old processes of scary people are on the other side of your monitor. We have to get through that (laughs) because otherwise, how are you going to do business? Well, but that's also a generational thing, you know, watching, you know, my kids are 12 and 14 and watching them adapt in March to online school where most of the curriculum was online anyway. Yeah. And like, I mean, I wouldn't tell you that they necessarily loved it, but the amount of time it took them to adapt to it was like a day. Right. I mean, nothing. Right. right. You know, they know how to use a laptop. They know how to use headphones. They know how to use Zoom. They figured out Zoom in five minutes. Yes. You know? Yeah, my seven-year-old figured it out pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, you know, they're the ones to model. Right? Not yeah. as old. Not as old people filled with our fears and trepidations. And... <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. I... My, my kids, uh, to give you an example, they play Fortnite with their two best friends. And when we were in Palm Springs for most of the lockdown, it turned out their best friends and their family were also in Palm Springs for the lockdown. And we would occasionally go out for a bike ride with them, socially distanced. Right. We'd finish the bike ride and they'd race back to their respective houses to play the games Fortnite. online together. Yeah, my Rather little guy. In, 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 together yeah. in person. Yes. And they'd have like two, three devices going, Fortnite, FaceTime video, and they're doing all this stuff. <laughs> my all guy's time. doing the same. Like, and it's like, they, they. I swear they would have rather done that than be together. Yeah, I'm That's noticing the same trend. It's weird to me. Yeah, yeah. But, well, but they, they don't care. They, yeah. don't, they don't associate one more than the other. Yeah. So, yeah. so I do think that's a, you know, when you are running a business, you know, you should think about it from the standpoint of, you know, what would a 15-year-old or 13-year-old do? Not yeah. what a 30-year-old do, right? Because they'll, you know, sure, you know, I can do anything. Right? Yeah. I mean, the first time I saw my older kids do entire transactions in the back of a car I was driving on their phone, that would have formerly been complicated things to do, right? Like and buying houses. Yeah, you know, restaurant reservations, you know, right, or whatever, right, you know, you're like, okay, well, so I do think that it's just things that work well during the pandemic are just yet another example, the thousandth example since the dawn of the internet, that 
the trend is always towards reducing friction in mm -hmm. everything. Okay, friction could be a middleman. Friction could be multiple a multiple tier distribution system. Whatever those things are that we all grew up with, it's never a question of if. It's just a question of how and when. And right. so, if you're in a business that relies on some friction as part of its business model, you are a moron. Okay, but maybe yeah. you don't know it yet, but you are basically doomed and a moron. And if you're in a business that pushes on the lever of reducing friction and probably disrupts somebody else, that's a good place to be, even if it's tricky. Yeah. And this just accentuates it. The fact that you can now work from home for a big company for a six-figure salary forever just seems like so fanciful. If you told me that, 35 years ago, I just laughed at you, and now yes. it's completely going to happen, right? Yes, 100%. And it, even the the financial models that people are running, like trading, you know, all these yeah. trading. I have a trading floor in my dining room right now. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, I, at some what? point, I can't have company over, so it's the perfect place to have the trading floor. <laughs> but at some point... And, big table. Yeah, it's a big table. But I think you're going to see a lot more of that and the ability for people to do those kinds of jobs where they didn't have access before. Yeah, that's right. And so it's a good test, I guess. My only point is that it's a good intellectual test to run for whatever it is you're doing all day long is, is it, you know, um, is what you're doing counter to that trend or going along with that trend? Yes. Right. One of the books you told me to read when I met you uh, through uh, JT Fox was um, Shoe Dog. Yeah, Do Shoe Dog. Shoe Dog? A great book. Right. It's such a great book. And when you started our conversation, I don't remember, I don't know if you realized you'd said this, but a lot of business owners who are, you know, hitting that point where it's critical and hard to navigate maybe the cash flow or this is happening or that's happening. That has been one of the inspirations for me personally after you recommended that book because I didn't realize that Nike had almost gone bankrupt 19 times. I mean, when you read that book, you're convinced they're going to go bankrupt even though you know they didn't. Right, right? yes. I know. No, uh, that book, I mean, Phil Knight is a clever guy. He's an unusual guy because he's kind of shy and awkward and he's not like this kind of a guy, right? But... That book is so well written because he wears his heart on his sleeve in the book. And he completely disrupted everything, just like yes. we were talking about. Yes. I mean, he changed everything the yes. way he did it. And he did a lot of it by the seat of his pants, right? He hired strange people. The first <laughs> five or six people in the company were just all odd as hell, right? right. But it all worked because he trusted his gut. And right. the other thing about it, which I think I've talked about before, is that you know, if you don't have a lot of passion around what you're doing to the point of being kind of weird about it, you know, it probably the business you'll create will be kind of boring. You know? yes. So like Phil Knight, he really was a shoe dog. I mean, that's why the title is so good. He loved shoes. He loved how they were made. He totally geeked out on the last and the history. And so did Bill Bowerman, the coach at Oregon. And so like, I mean, shoes? I mean, it's so weird, you know? Remember they found that guy... Buried in the Alps. Yeah. What was his name? Uh, something Man. What was that guy's name? Remember they found the guy from the, from before 600 BC or 2000 BC? I can't remember his name. I don't remember nouns right uh, now. Yeah. I'm struggling. He had shoes on. He had, he had shoes 
That's yeah. the most interesting thing. Is he made his own shoes. Yes. They couldn't believe it when they found him. And he had he shoes on. Shoes. Yeah. So anyway, yes, that is a, if you, the two, my two favorite books about being a weird, CEO in a weird environment are that one and the one about Pixar. Creativity. Yes. Creativity. Which is all really good about managing creativity in a, yeah. a very odd situation. Because yeah. the problem with reading books about Steve Jobs is that, you know, you're not Steve Jobs. <laughs> so, you know, you're not a genius. You don't have great taste, right? You're not a Svengali. People won't march through walls for you. So right. all you learn how to do when you read about it is be a jerk. Right? right. And a lot of people, that's the inauthenticity in leadership, I find. People will read books about Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, and they're like, I'm going to lead this way. And it doesn't work. You know, you have to lead no, your way. Are you also a genius? No. Right. So, so it's a good test. Right. Yes. I, I would reiterate to everyone should read Shoe Dog because yeah. uh, it's it, it's really easy to relate to. Everybody likes Nikes and it's an amazing book. And he does the best thing is he stops the book right when they go public, when it's still pretty small. He doesn't mm-hmm. go through all the big company bullshit. Yeah. Just the first crazy parts to get Yeah, yeah that really worked. And I, I was really appreciative that you had me read that book. It was really great. Yeah, it puts a smile on your face, doesn't it? It's completely. And on days where there's tough, because it's tough. I'm an entrepreneur, and I'm coaching people, and I'm helping them build their own company while building my own company. And sometimes it's challenging. And anytime I have that self-doubt creep in or, uh-oh, moment, I just think about that book. And I'm like, okay, just keep going. Figure <laughs> it out. <laughs> Figure it out. He had a day job while he was doing it. Right. Yeah. Oh, As an accountant, right? Working for Price Waterhouse, mm-hmm. a lot of people, unbelievable. Really great. So one of the things that you uh, obviously you worked with Steve, you've worked with Bill and Paul Allen. What are some of the things that are your favorite moment or one favorite moment for you that kind of sticks out in terms of your own career? Where this was, you've you've done something you're incredibly proud of. You feel like I've arrived, I've made it, this is it for me. Is there any any one moment in time? Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's funny, so I had this thing happen to me, and then I should go out for this, I have another meeting. Okay. Um, so I, I worked for Paul Allen for a long time, and I sold uh, my company, Starwave, to Disney for a, a good price and everybody was happy and we built the SPN.com. And Paul, all, during that time, had become a huge investor in DreamWorks, the, the Katzenberg, Spielberg, Geffen thing. And because he was getting a lot of FaceTime with Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was suing Disney, he was getting a lot of anti-Disney sentiment from Katzenberg. So he was suspicious of Disney, even though he and I were the two biggest shareholders in Starwave. And so... The more they paid, the more we both made. Our, our interests were completely aligned. And so we had kind of this weird thing where in the process of selling it, our relationship soured for a while, which mm-hmm. was weird because I made him money, you know, and later on he took me out to lunch and he said, you actually made me money. And I'm like, yeah, you know, so he like thanked me and everything. But anyway, so it, this was in late 1998 and we were just about finishing the process. And Paul Allen had this giant party where he chartered a cruise ship and sailed around Alaska for like four or five days. It was really a fun party. And it was like 
Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, Jeff Goldblum, Robin Williams. It was a crazy party. I mean, there were like 50 super famous people, tons wow. of Seattle technical. Bill Gates was there. I was there. It was like, it was a crazy fun party. And, and at the time, I wasn't nearly as good friends with Bill Gates as I am now, although I knew him. And we were on this bird-watching expedition from the cruise ship to go look for bald eagles because it was up in Alaska. And I was there with Bill. And we were just like 40 of us in this little thing, and we were talking. And I told him, basically, what I just said, that, you know, I'm doing this thing. I've sold, I'm just about done selling started to Disney. I had to work for Disney for a while. And, you know, Paul's like all kind of pissy, you know. And I was like really kind of, you know, here I am at this party, and it's just weird. It wasn't, it was not, it was dissonant. Okay, yes. it wasn't good, right? Yeah. And Bill Gates went out of his way. He took me aside from this bird-watching expedition and spent 10 minutes telling me what a fabulous job I had done and how much value I'd created, how everybody made out well, I made money, Paul made money, Disney was happy, it was a great product. People at Microsoft were jealous of the work we'd done, you know, on and on. We'd really pioneered a lot of internet technology. And I was like kind of moved by it. Yes. And then I get back home and he sends me an email unprompted that's the same thing, yeah. suitable for framing. Like he sends me an email basically sort of codifying what he had told me in person, lest I didn't remember it or people didn't believe that he had told it to me. And he knew that he was Bill Gates doing it because his judgment in 1998 was probably the single most thing anybody could ask for in tech. And he knew that I knew him and everything, right? right. And he sent me this email out of the goodness of his heart because, of course, he knew Paul Allen well and knew this funny quirk in his personality. Right. And he just sent it to be a great guy. Yeah. So that was kind of the moment, yeah. if you know, because it, nobody had to do this. Right. I know. I'd sold the company. It was obvious I'd done a good job, right? But, you know, he just went out of his way. So it was important for two reasons. One is it was like, well, if he says so, I can't be a complete moron, right? Yeah, And two, you. what a nice guy to do yeah. this. You know? it, so it blew me away, and it blew me away on two levels. One is I felt validated. And two is I felt like, okay, well, this is the way to act. Yes. You people, be nice to people when you don't have to be. Yes. Know? Yeah. And I, I think you just, and I know you got to go because you've got a meeting and I'm really grateful for the time that you spent with me today. Yeah. I think you just solidified the point on leadership. That is what leadership is. It's yes. not anything else. That yes. is the sign of a leader, like really getting someone at their, like at their purpose, at letting them know you're valuable and you added value. Cause I think that's so, what we all want. I'll tell you a last story. So, uh, I really didn't want to work for Microsoft out of Stanford Business School. I really wanted to work for Nike because I'm from Portland and I'm a big Nike fan. And right. Phil Knight and I were both Oregon Ducks. We went to Stanford Business School. I was like, hey, we're the same person, you know? So I met him at Stanford Business School. He came and talked. And so I interviewed at Nike in 1983 in Portland and I interviewed at Microsoft in 1983 in Seattle. And Nike was really disorganized. And unless you were like a champion marathon runner or from the shoe business or something, you weren't going to get a job. It right. was tiny. It was like 300 people. And Microsoft was slightly more organized. And they hired a couple of MBAs and I got a job there. So 18 years later, at the on January 1st, 2002, Oregon is in the Fiesta Bowl playing Colorado 
and they end up winning it, and they become number two in the nation of football that year. And I have a sideline pass from ESPN to the game. It's right after 9-11. So there aren't many sideline passes. And so does Phil Knight. So we're on the sideline of this game, and there's almost nobody on the sideline because it's right after 9-11. Yeah. So there's maybe 10 civilians in the whole sideline of this game instead of the usual 50 or 100. Right. So I walk up to him, and I reintroduce myself to him, and I tell him this story about how I grew up in Portland. In fact, we grew up in the same neighborhood in Portland. And I said, I really wanted to work for Nike. I went to interview. It was kind of a shit show. The place was really disorganized. So I ended up working for this goddamn software company in Seattle. <laughs> Blah, 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 blah. And he laughs and he looks at me and he goes, he doesn't say anything like too bad or come work for me now. He just says, well, it worked out okay and walks off. <laughs> like laughing. Right. Yeah. Really. So I thought that That's was so awesome. Yeah. Uh, it's a, those are great moments. I'm so yeah. glad that you shared them with us. And thank you so much for being on the Coach C podcast. But, Right. And uh, have a great rest of your day and week. Stay safe and healthy, obviously. Yeah, and in Toronto, uh, watch out for those bugs, man. Kill those mosquitoes. It's there. actually, we're now getting ready for, there's a, apparently a wave of cicadas that will be hatching every 17 years from the ground somewhere. There is a big cicada swarming going to be happening in North America. And it will, I was on my, I was meditating on my back deck this morning and I could hear the cicadas. I'm like, oh, they're coming. They're coming. Plague of locusts. Yeah, so we'll have COVID, we'll have locusts, we'll have some murder hornets. Um, I think we're good. Don't even get me started. There's in Washington now. Oh, yeah. They're here. Yeah, Yeah, they're scary. So. Okay, if I catch one, we'll come back on. Okay. (laughs) Thanks again so much, Mike. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay, take care. Bye. Thank you again for joining us on the Coach C podcast. This is Coach C, Christine Nielsen, and we were with Mike Slade, who former Microsoft launched Excel, worked with Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Paul Allen, and so many greats. He also uh, was ESPN.com. Mike has so many incredible stories about what to do and how to pivot and how to be yourself. And I think the best thing in that particular podcast was authenticity. We're going to split this podcast up so you'll have session one and session two. Thanks again for joining us on the Coach C Podcast. You can reach us on Apple, Spotify, uh, and podcast.io, podcast.co. You can also reach us on SoundCloud. You can follow us on our YouTube channel, Christine Nielsen, on YouTube. Uh, We will be posting the video up on YouTube as well. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Coach C Official or any of our channels are LinkedIn, Christine Nielsen, or Contrast Results Group, which is the name of our company. Thanks again for joining us on the Coach C Podcast.